ladies and gentlemen, there is only one thing on my mind, and that is the 25th anniversary tour of the freaking Fugees. I need that. In the words of Pop Game is Chuck D. Bring the noise. FM Podcast Network. I am Charlie Taylor, and this is what's good. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you've all had a good week in the circumstances. You guys need to understand how gassed I was when I saw that fucking headline, bro. When I saw a headline of Fuji's World Tour, and I saw that shit said London in December, the sixth of December. Oh, at the O2. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I was. I, I I was so elated. I was so elated. You have not. You don't understand, guys. Like if you hear when I'm when I'm sitting, I'm currently looking at four pieces of art in some fashion. Okay. So to the far left of me, just picture it. So the far left of me, uh, there is a there there is a uh, a vinyl. Uh, kind of like stack, right? So there's a one, two, three going down of uh, just a vinyl. And they all have to, and they're all albums by one artist, and that's Lil Sims, who we talked about uh, last, I think it was last episode. And just on the right of those is a, is a, is a, is a piece, uh, a piece of art of Lauren Hill. In uh, Shout to Medina design, uh, that he does a great just stamp uh, art, hip hop art, uh, basically referencing the Chuck D line. Most of my heroes don't appear on no stamp, and he basically literally creates a stamp version of certain artists. Um, I've I've got plenty of the shirts uh, shirts in that t- in that version in this in that template. Big L, Nas, Big Daddy Kane, and Lauren Hill, uh, and plenty of others. But he did a print version, only 50 made. And I got one of those bad boys, and I framed that shit, and it's sitting there with the LH to the next to the to the to the bottom left of her. It's like it's like it's like a it's miseducation. No wait, she is it. I'm trying to think of what era Fuji, uh, what era Lauren Hill was. It's when she had like the uh, the the na- the nappy hair, but like a short in a short version. So not um not miseducation, Lauren, but more Fuji Zero Lauren, and uh, says everything is everything in the bomb, right? You have no idea how gassed I would be to see not just Little Sims, who I am seeing at Brixton O2 on the sixteenth of December, if I'm correct, and also see the Fujis on the sixth. You telling me I get to see two of my favorite two, uh, two two of my like top tens <laughs> in the space of ten days? You gotta be fucked up. You think I'm not going for that? I'm gunning for that. As soon as that ticket drop, I'm copying. If if you guys want in, let me know. Uh, I'm cool. I'm cool to come with go with some people, but I need I need I need yeses now. I I can't. I I'm not going. I'm not going to wait. 
As soon as those ticket drops, if nobody sa- if nobody tells me, yo Charlie, come, I want to come through with you. I, I'm, I'm getting that one. I'm getting that one ticket. Okay. I don't. Every if 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 nobody hits me up, it's every man for himself. All right. It's happy. It has to happen for me. It has to happen. I need to get good seats. Okay. I'm gonna get seats because I, I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna stand. I feel like uh, standing in the stadiums a bit uh, air to me. I'd rather sit. You know what I mean? I'm going to get my vibe on. I'm going to get my groove on. Trust me. All right. But uh, I'd rather not stand uh, for several hours because, um, you know, stadium stadium shows are very long. And I did God's a rap and that, sh- that shit crushed my crushed my legs, crushed my ankles, crushed my knees. They were, that was a real test of endurance right there. And it wasn't uh, that enticing. Okay. So I'd rather sit and uh, watch, you know, Fuji's and whoever's supporting. I'm on that. I need that. Okay. I need that. Okay. Anyway, with that said, let's hop into the show. We have one of everything uh, for for the for the show itinerary today. This episode. But before we begin, email to IG, Discord link, all that, all that, all that in the full show notes. Please go peep the articles for yourself and support the writers that make this show possible. And with that said, let the beat drop. And let's get into the show. In a week where Australia, UK and the US agree to a joint security pact, Steve Sinclair, inventor of the pocket calculator and pioneer of home computing, dies aged 81. The Taliban bans g- ban girls from secondary education. Whoa, who, who saw that coming? Uh, Only Falls and Horses actor John Chalice dies aged 79. Uh, and a fun fact about that, the fact that Ice-T, of all people, was also paying respects because they were internet mates apparently just i i need to know the story like that that just blows my fucking mind it's, it's crazy to think about just john so boise from only fools and horses was regularly talking to ice t the rapper it's just turned actor it's just crazy to think about and lastly netflix acquire roll doll's entire catalog I'm not sh- I'm not sure how I feel about this because for one thing I mean I'm not really I'm not that into Roald Dahl books okay I I I, I there there are some there are a couple of stories like Fantastic Mr Fox is like top 5 for me like in terms of children's stories I love Fantastic Mr Fox I rinsed Fantastic Mr Fox back in the day the Wes Anderson movie slaps love that fi- love that film okay absolutely knocked out of the fucking park with that one okay I'm just not sure the Netflix is the right thing there i just you know i i don't know what they're gonna do i don't know if they're gonna do some live action bollocks uh or just re you know re re up everything re up matilda re up and that's the point i guess isn't it you know what i mean to bring it to the young audience again and bring roald Dahl back into that and that's cool right um because i feel like you know roald Dahl's the children's book writer is very good and um you know some good stuff in there but um I don't know. Uh, maybe maybe I'm just being protective. But anyway, we begin with sport, and uh, I feel like every time I talk about basketball, it's always about the Philadelphia 76ers. I feel like the last time I talked about basketball was about Philly, um, and you know, it's 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 not on, it's not on purpose. But um, you know, when you just when when you see a a car crash in this slow of a motion. You can't help but look, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, so for those that don't know, for those that aren't uh, that aren't. Uh, 
that I'm inclined. Um, so uh, the Philadelphia 76ers are in a bit of a bind, okay? So uh, if you aren't, aren't aware, they, uh, in, l- last, in the previous season, in the last season that just uh, that ended a couple of months ago, uh, they went out of the playoffs in a very spectacular fashion um, with one of their players, Ben Simmons, uh, uh, basically having a just a, just a straight path to dunk uh, the basketball, right? You know, just just easy two points. But instead, he 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 passes the ball, and his teammate has to throw something up. And it's it's just very it's it's at a lower percentage than what he should have done, which was just dunk the fucking thing. So as you can imagine, a lot of people were pissed off about it, and a lot of people got at Ben Simmons, going like, "Now he so and he or now he doesn't dunk." What's his? What's the problem? Because the the because the 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 overriding narrative for Ben Simmons is that he can't shoot, and or or he does or he can shoot, but just chooses not to shoot. Um, there's a running joke in NBA social uh, in NBA social media circles uh, of uh, every year. There's a, there's always a video that drops of Ben Simmons knocking down jump shots. You know, what I mean, clean stroke, knocking them down, nothing but net. And uh, everyone's just like, oh, no, 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 we're not doing this again. We are not doing this again. And then he comes to the season, and then he ain't shooting for shit. He, ain't sh- he, he just doesn't. He just doesn't shoot. And it's crazy to think about, okay? But now, Ben Simmons isn't feeling Philadelphia anymore. And I can understand why. There was actually a local TV station in Philadelphia that basically played a dustbin, or a garbage bin, or whatever they call it over there, um... <laughs> flowing down a flooded river because they recently had floods there, I assume, and it was just like live, live images of Ben Simmons leaving Philadelphia, and it's literally just a garbage can, just a or a garbage, uh, uh, you know, the the garbage on wheels, right? You know, whatever they're called, the bin bins on wheels, right? Uh, weedy bins, that's the one. Fucking jeez, <laughs> struggle, struggle bus over here. Um, yeah, so uh, yeah, you see one of those like uh, going through the for- uh, going through the flooding uh, flooded war, and it's funny. But the fact that it was local Philly uh, TV is just, um, it's interesting, it's fascinating, right? So, the overriding conversation has been that uh, Ben Simmons uh, is not going to report to training camp. And just to say, the NBA season starts in 30 days, in less than, in less than a month. Training camp starts in less than 10 days. Uh, preseason starts in, I don't know, in between those days, right? Uh, but no, most notably, training camp starts in less than 10 days, okay? So, you yeah, have just over a week to go, okay? And uh, some uh, sources uh, I'm going to read here. Uh, so via Adrian Wojnarowski of ESPN. Uh, it's dropped uh, yesterday as I record. It's quick for a quick, quick read, you know, just a quick report here, just to get you guys up to speed. Um, that Ben Simmons will not report and is apparently done with the Philadelphia 76ers. Uh, let's just jump right in. See, see if we can gain some clarity here. So, in a looming standoff that could have last, uh, that could have lasting implications for the NBA, Philadelphia 76ers all-star forward Ben Simmons will not report for the opening of training camp next week, and intends to never play another game for the franchise. Sources told ESPN on Tuesday. Simmons, 25, wants a trade out of Philadelphia and told ma- told management uh, that he has no plans to wear an NBA uniform again. Until he has moved to a new team, sources said. This is setting up a showdown for a Sixers franchise with championship hopes that will be greatly diminished without Simmons on the floor, balancing the likely short-term losses with him sidelined against the long-term goals of getting a maximum trade return for Simmons. 
Simmons explained his stance to ownership and management in a late August meeting and had uh, no direct contact with the organization for weeks, sources said. Simmons has four years and $147 million, excuse me, million dollars left on his max contract, including 33 mil for 2021 and 2022, which is the season upcoming, and clearly understands the potential financial implications of sitting out. The Sixers could test Simmons' willingness to stay away by finding him considerable salary. At request, at Simmons's request, uh, the Sixers have discussed trade for, uh, trades throughout the league uh, since the end of the playoffs, but they were disappointed in the offers and decided to hold on to him with hopes he would start the season and improve his trade value with his performance. Sixers president of basketball ops Daryl Morey and coach Doc Rivers have told Simmons that they want him in training camp and on the floor to partner with all NBA center Joel Embiid. Something that Simmons has told them he no longer wants to do, sources said. Beyond the league's collective bargaining agreement, which provides the ability for Sixers to withhold salary for a player's failure to provide services, the Sixers have their own set of rules that include fines for missing media day and each missed practice. The final uh, final resort for the Sixers could be to suspend Simmons for, quote, failing to render services, unquote, once pre-season games begin which could cost Simmons $227,613 for each missed game. Simmons' contract is structured for him to receive 50% of his salary before October 1st. Simmons' performance in Eastern Conference semi-finals loss to Atlanta Hawks played a role in drama playing out, but Simmons has become increasingly frustrated, etc., etc., as I kind of half explained it before. So that's the entirety. Um, And um, yeah, so why am I talking about this? Because I love me, ladies and gentlemen, a slow motion car crash. Like I said at the start, I just, it's just, there's just nothing more interesting than a slow motion car crash such as this. And it's even better, even better, knowing that it's the Philadelphia 76ers. It just warms my heart. It, it gives me life. I have, I can't lie to you. It gives me life. Okay. I'm here for it. It's it's just the best fucking feeling, okay? It's so great uh, knowing that the 76ers are in this bind. And the fact that it's Ben Simmons is even better. Because I'm not really that into Ben Simmons, to be honest. But, you know, I can't I can't hate, right? But I can understand. I'm, I'm not much of a hater as most people, okay? Uh, I see the potential in someone like Ben Simmons. But I just find his attitude a bit... Ugh. Right, but here's the problem, guys. Here's here's the here's the conundrum. Okay, on both sides, here is the conundrum for you. It is the fact that the last thing that anybody saw, as it pertains to Ben Simmons, was the missed dunk and the fact that he pushed it to another play, uh, another teammate to make the final play. And it wasn't the final play, it wasn't like a game-winning shot, but it was basically to keep him in the game, right? It was very important at that time, right? But as soon as that, as soon as he threw that ball away, it was all but over. And it was just, I, I, I can't tell you how how tasty that felt. It, it's just a finger-licking good, finger-freaking-licking. KFC could not make a recipe better than that. For me, I, it was it was so great. But anyway, uh, the the reason why this is so fascinating to me, uh, fascinating, I'll give I'll give I'll push aside the funny funny side of it, right? But the fascinating thing about this is the fact that 
Philadelphia are pretty much fucked either way. Uh, shout out to shout out to Sean Connery R.I.P. or fucked either way. You know what I mean? It's just if you haven't seen The Rock, go see The Rock. It's a good film. And um, yeah, they're, they're fucked either way. They, they 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 can't they can't get anywhere. So they have to trade him, right? They have to. Because you can't have that guy. You can't have that guy in the locker room anymore. You can't. You simply can't. He hasn't hit anybody up. Like he's he's probably the amount of missed phone calls he probably has on his phone is palpable. <laughs> he he probably has so many blocked contacts. It's crazy. Okay, um, he ain't he ain't fucking with it no more. But the thing is, guys, Ben Simmons isn't. He doesn't hold that much sway at this point in time. Maybe later down the line, right? If he improves as a player, but people, but if you're a if you're an NBA team, how are you so sure that he's going to put in the effort in this fashion? You know, if he's going to do this to the team that drafted him and the team that's been you know been by his side since you know since the beginning in the, uh, of his NBA career, what the fuck are they going? What the fuck is he? They going to do? What are they going to think if they even thought about trading him? So, whatever whatever Philly does, they are not going to get the package they want. Which, if I remember correctly from watching a few sh- uh, from listening to a few, uh, uh, reading a few articles and that, there's basically like three first round picks and a couple of players. That ain't happening. That ain't happening. You're, you're, you're glad if you get a swap. You are glad if you get a swap, alright? A straight up player swap. Now, um, uh, now, uh, in in recent in recent days, in the past like week or so, uh, John Wall of uh, the no, Houston Rockets um, has recently, uh, well, they both recently, the team and the player, basically said they're mutually gonna try and find a trade destination for John Wall, right? Because uh, John Wall's a good dude um, on the face; he seems like a good dude, and he he wants to he wants the Rockets to get something good for him. They don't wanna they don't want him to you know buy him out, and it's practically impossible to do that since his salary is so fucking high. He's, uh, he has like a top five salary. Um, I think he's getting like 40 mil in the in his last year of the deal. Um, so you know, to find a trade is hard. But hey, guys, Ben Simmons for John Wall. I don't know if that trade machine's hitting. And that you probably need to make some make some changes on that to make the money to make the uh, the books the books balance, right? But I'm here for that. I'm here for that. Let's do it. Yeah, that sounds great to me. I, I I want that to happen. But honestly, I may want that to happen, but. I just want this circus to to keep on moving, keep on trucking along sixes, keep holding out because this is the tastiest thing I have ever, a tastiest bit of goss, NBA goss I have had in a while and it just, I love it, I freaking love it. So move on to film and TV, and uh, yeah, this this one's weird. This one's weird. It's not. It's not quite. I mean, I say it's weird, but it's very obvious of what this is. Uh, we we know this conversation. As soon as I as soon as I talk about this conversation, you know exactly where it's gonna go. But let's just go. Let's just do it for fun, okay? Let's just do this for fun. Yeah, let's just do it for fun. So this is via uh, the Independent. Uh, this is an opinion by uh, Marcus Ryder. Uh, who's a visiting professor at Birmingham City University, media diversity, and executive producer of New Media for, uh, what was that say? Kaixin? Kaixin? I'm not sure if that's Chinese, but Kaixin Global? I'm not, I'm, I don't know. 
I might be bottling that. But anyway, Marcus Ryder of the uh, uh, from the Independent here. Um, so this is called "Our Government Seems to Think a Distinctively Distinctively British Program Simply Means White Characters." Oh, Marcus, you gave away the lead. You gave away the lead already. Let's get into it anyway, because you know. I love this game. Uh, British broadcasters have a problem. They are being outgunned, outwatched, and outspent by large American streaming services such as Netflix, Disney, and Amazon. According to UK government ministers, this is making us all a little bit, quote-unquote, too American and destroying our great British culture. Stop right here. Okay, stop. Let's stop right here because it's so fascinating, right? Because I literally had a conversation with um, some American friends, right? Um... This was, uh, I think, about a month ago. Excuse me, about a month ago, right? Um, I had the conversation. I had the conversation about uh, culture, and uh, I, I, it basically middle, middle, middle. I was telling them about what I watched as a kid, and overwhelmingly, because I've been very privileged for my uh, watching habits. Um, I have been on, you know, a Sky TV tip uh, for as long as I can remember. Okay, I have not experienced a world apart from university without sky tv okay and if you guys um, are unaware of sky tv or just having a sky box in general it is an absolute privilege it is the, mo- is the most privileged thing you can have as a tv viewer in my in my opinion having a sky tv box is absolutely stupid um, and if you have all the bells and whistles as well fuck you are you are living like a king, especially these days, since you can get Netflix, APV, as a YouTube, as apps, as apps on the box itself. Okay, it's absolutely absurd the privilege you have. Okay, so I was telling them, you know, uh, I was like, uh, what I watched, and basically what I watched was Nickelodeon, Cartoon Network, all that shit as a youth, right? My friends, however, most of my friends, I like, were watching, you know, CBBC, and uh, you know, just terrestrial British television, t- uh, children's TV, okay? While everyone was watching Tracy Beaker, I was watching Drake and Josh, Spongebob, Fairly Old Parents at a regular clip, okay? So it's interesting out of this first paragraph that they're talking about this. Guys, this ship has already sailed. For me, for someone like me personally, that ship sailed 20 years ago, okay? The fact that you're talking about this now it has or the ships already sell my G. As soon as Nickelodeon, Cartoon Network, Toonami, remember that? Fuck. Uh, Jetix. Oh, bang up. Bang, there's some bangers on that one. Um, yeah, as soon as those fuck at Disney Channel, as soon as Boomerang, fuck Boomerang, man. They, they, they had some bangers, heaters, okay? I was spoiled for choice as a kid, okay? And they were all American. And I didn't notice it until. You know, in recent years, I was just like, fuck, I watched a lot of American TV and I listened to a lot of American music. My sister was listening to Destiny's Child. My dad was listening to hip hop and, uh, you know, and the only British stuff was maybe Garage and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, Dizzy Rascal. That's uh, pretty much it. The rest of it, all American, all American. Whatever's was trying, American, American, American most of the time, honestly. So the fact that it's all about two American um, the ship's already fucking sailed, okay, but it's obviously much more obvious from a Netflix, Disney, and Amazon perspective now, it is way, way more obvious, especially when you account for the Olympics, for example, um, the fact that Disney, uh, uh, Disney, Discovery Plus had the rights, and they, and BBC had to get crumbs, they were getting crumbs, they couldn't show the whole Olympic, uh, they couldn't have the whole Olympic experience like we've had in previous, 
uh, Olympics um, from, I guess, 2012 onwards. Uh, because Disney, uh, Disney again, Discovery Plus had the official European rights to it, um, but but they actually gave uh, BBC the ability to show elite two sports at a time, at one time, and nothing else. They couldn't do the whole experience because um, Discovery Plus had it on lock. Uh, but they gave, they literally gave BBC a bone. They literally gave them a bone in that fashion. So it's already happened. So I can see the problem here, and I can see what they're talking about, but in some ways, that ship's already been sailed. Anyway, let's continue on. The solution. Well, yesterday, now the now former media minister, John Whittingdale, announced that in the future, UK UK's public service broadcasters, BBC, ITV, Channel 4, Channel 5, will have a legal requirement to produce, quote-unquote, distinctively British programmes. See, see, how, see how I laid out the issue right there, and they just went, yeah, let's, 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 do, the, let's do the dumb thing. Anyway, they included Doctor Who, Downton Abbey, Great British Bake Off, Bodyguard, Fleabag, Derry Girls, and Only Fools and Horses. Most people I spoke to in the media industry noticed that while they are all great programs, they seem to have one thing in common. Overwhelmingly white lead characters and presenters. Cue Twitter rants about what it means to be British and trying to define British identity. The whole debate reminded me of a meeting I was in 10 years ago as head of BBC Scotland Current Affairs. A team from London had come up to Glasgow to try and define what made a quote-unquote Scottish programme. Did you like my Scottish accent there? I, I, I literally just pinged that click. Didn't even, didn't, I read Scottish and I was like, Scottish. Uh, the team from London wanted to discuss Scottish culture. Uh, my colleagues in Scotland wanted to discuss edit. No, I'm not trying editorial control. <laughs> I don't have to say that in Scottish. Uh, in a Scottish accent, the meeting came to a few conclusions. One, Scottish programmes are different from London productions because they are made in Scotland. Fair enough. Number two, there is no easily easy quantifiable dis- difference. Living in Scotland gives people different perspectives, interests, and in some cases even different values from living elsewhere in the rest of the UK. And so, giving editorial control, this is organically reflected in the finished program. I get that. Understood. That's a worthy uh, point to make. Number three. Everyone in the meeting fought against Scottish programmes being pigeonholed, kilts, haggis, bagpipes, etc. Uh, with this in mind, if we really want uh, distinctly British programmes, quote-unquote, uh, we need to think less about what is on our screens and more about who is behind the camera. Who would argue, for example, that Red Dwarf is not distinctly British and that is set in our space? Or that Life of Brian is not one of the most quintessentially British films and that is set in the Middle East? Killing Eve is one of my favourite distinctly British programmes and that has a Korean-Canadian in the lead along with a Liverpudlian playing an East European assassin. Did anyone have the same reaction when I was watching Killing Eve and I looked up who Jodie Comer... Wait, wait, it wasn't when I looked up who Jodie Comer was. It was when Jodie Comer won, I think it was a BAFTA or just any award, doesn't matter, right? She She won an award and she just started speaking in the thickest Liverpudlian accent and I was like, fuck off. I screamed. I was like, what? What? I legit thought she was... Honestly, she she pulled the wool over my fucking eyes. I legit thought she was like Russian. Came through. I know Jodie Comer is obviously not Russian. I could have, you know, gleaned from that. But bro, she was convincing as shit. She 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 pulled the wool over my eyes, man. Oh, it was crazy when she came up with that liver putty, and I was like, what? Anyway. Continue on. Uh, all three productions are unquestionably British, and that is because they were made by Brits. <sighs> what? 
<laughs> a crazy concept. Uh, British identity on screen, like Scottish, Scottish identity, is not about simple surface qualities. It is embedded by the values and beliefs of the people producing it. And this is where the real issue lies. Far too many British programs are still disproportionately directed and produced by white, non-disabled, heterosexual men. According to the trade body directed UK, fewer than a quarter of British programs are directed by women and fewer than 3% of programs are directed by people of colour. According to the UK film industry body creative skill set, only 0.3% of the total film workforce are disabled. This means that our vision of what it means to be British and what is distinctively British, quote unquote, is invariably seen through the eyes of a very narrow group of people. I believe the British government is right to protect and support British broadcasters from the American streamers. But one of the reasons people in the UK are turning to the US streamers is because they do not see themselves adequately reflected in the British programs being produced. We fix that not by simply looking at what is happening in front of the camera, but what is happening behind it. I am black, distinctively British and proud, and it comes through in everything I do, whether I want it to or not and that is the crux of it that is the crux of the issue here right so take a show like desmond's which is one of my favorite shows of all time okay if you haven't seen desmond's i implore you to go see desmond's hopefully it's still on all four if you can watch them all if not i'm sure there is a, a part you know part one two splits on youtube um of uh you know on, in 480p quality okay i'm sure you can find them somewhere just just watch like uh, an episode and you'll get what i mean when i t- when i reference desmond's here desmond's was created by someone called Tri- by a man called tricks Worrell. um if i remember correctly i'm just gonna google that just to <laughs> just to be uh, co- uh just to be confident in that um yeah so desmond's was created by a black guy okay Simply put, it was created by a black guy, right? Uh, yeah, created by Trix Worrell, and um, it starred uh, Norman Beaton, Carmen Monroe, etc., um, etc., et right? Um, great cast, majority black cast, okay? It was it was created in, ni- it started in 19, 1989, okay? And went on till 1994, okay? It was, a, it was, a, it went for six seasons, if I remember correctly, um, 70 or something episodes, okay? Uh, one of the one of Channel 4's longest running sitcoms, okay, and it was about a black barbershop and their family in Peckham, eighties slash nineties Peckham, okay. Now I can give you you know demographic statistics of what Peckham was like, but I think you can glean what I'm talking about here, okay. It was a distinctively British show. But it just so happen to have black people majority, uh, majority black cast and uh, well, creator for sure and writing. Uh, I'm not really sure about you know who did the get uh, you know about the behind the scenes if it was just all white apart from the writer and director. But anyway, oh Ryan creator, creator anyway. But you know what I mean, okay? Majority black cast at least. Let's just say that for because sure, I know that for a fact, okay? Um, and creator. You can't tell me that show is not distinctively British. Okay? It is distinctively British. It is a great um, flashpoint. Um, it is a great... Uh, uh, not flashpoint, that's not the word. It is a great snapshot, that's the word, of what black British life was at that time. In London, especially. It's an amazing show. It's one of the funniest shows. I, I watch it and I'm just 
<laughs> it's just endlessly replayable. It's an amazing show, and it's an and it's great for you know just thinking about the time. And uh, I wasn't born that time, but it's fascinating looking at that time and seeing uh, how the you know how because uh, it doesn't it it doesn't even. It's not even one of those things where, like, it constantly talks about race or anything, you know. I mean, obviously, there's cultural jokes there that, you know, if you're not, uh, if you're not Caribbean or, you know, African, uh, like a couple of the characters in there, uh, 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 what's Bossman's name? Uh, um, 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 anyway, uh, I forget Bossman's name. That's pissing me off. Um, but yeah, if you if <laughs> if you watch it and you you, and, you know, there's going to be some cultural jokes that might go over your head, and that's fine. That's fine. I watch plenty of American TV, and I'm just like, I don't know what the fuck that means, but hey, but hey ho, you know what I mean? It's just, it's just what it is what it is. You don't have to understand everything, okay? Matthew, Matthew, uh, uh, shout out to uh, uh, how do you say, how do you say that? Gu- Guillermo Asante. I'm gonna ha- ha- take a stab and say that's what it is. Um, yeah, but it's not even just about race. It's a, you know, it's a cultural commentary. Um, uh, a, a, a commentary on age a lot of the time. You know, the, the, there's episodes where like the kids, the Ambrose kids. Um, you know, uh, they ha- Sean's like six, fifteen, sixteen. Gloria's like eighteen, nineteen. That some that fashion. You know, what I mean, they're like young adults by the end, right? And uh, Michael is the oldest son. He's like a banker, and he's very uppity, right? Uppity, quote unquote, uppity. You know, what I mean. Age, uh, just just the, the commentary it has there is so rich, because and the reason for that is because it was created by a black guy, and it had a majority black cast, and it made sense. All of it made sense, and it was funny as fucking hell. Okay, and it makes sense in something like Only Fools and Horses. Okay, there's no disrespect to Only Fools and Horses. R.I.P. John Chalice, right quick. You know what I mean. It's, it, it is what it is. All these shows deserve a place. But the problem is, is that the solution is always just, let's just make sh- more white shit. That's not the point here. Okay? The reason why people go to Netflix or Amazon Prime or whatever is because they don't see themselves on screen regularly enough. And how funny is it, right, that this this all came at around the same time Channel 4's Black to Front that we talked about last week came through, came and went. How funny is that? Do you think that's a coincidence? I don't I don't I don't know. I don't know if that's a coincidence that he started talking about this kind of shit. At the same time Channel 4 ho- uh, basically created a whole day full of black content. Or or just content with well, I'll reword that content with uh you know black people at the forefront. Of everything, you know. It, I just, just a thought. I don't know if it's a coincidence, right? Maybe, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Maybe related. Maybe a complete uh, uh, dog whistle. I'm not sure. I don't want to. I don't want you know. Confirm or deny that. I don't know. I don't know for a fact. But you can't tell me that the decision there for distinctively British, right? And and acting like always oh, because you know the streamers are coming are coming for us, right? No, the problem is. You're not giving you 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 know what this is great this is perfect I'm gonna stop there I'm gonna stop right there and bleed right in to the next segment of this show because I think it's perfect point to stop right there and go to the next one because I think it make I think it adds to the whole point of this conversation.
So let's hop into music, right? Let's hop, let's hop into music because it bleeds right perfectly in. So this is an article uh, by the New Statesman, right? This is called the New Bi- Nubia Garcia. I've been saying Nubia Garcia for years and... Uh, I was watching the Mercury Prize, and uh, they, Lauren Laverne said new buyer, and I was like, fuck, I've been botting her name since, Jesus Christ, can't believe it. Anyway, so uh, yeah, this is uh, this is basically uh, just a piece uh, featuring her, uh, it's called Cut to, Cuts to Arts Funding Will Make Music, quote-unquote, Very Elitist, okay? Um, this is by Ellen uh, Pearson Hager. Uh, for 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 the writer, for the credit as well. So uh, let's let's jump right in because I think this adds to the entire conversation, and the crux of the and the connection to both of these is funding. I feel I feel it's to, it's, it's towards funding, and towards the uh, what's the word and uh, towards the diversity of said funding. Okay, so let's just jump right in. The moment Nubaya Garcia uh, released that, r- realized that she and her collaborators were onto something was when she heard the electronic producer Fortet play Moses Boyd's track Rye Lane Shuffle during a Boiler Room DJ set in 2015. The song on which Garcia plays bass clarinet alongside Binker Golding on saxophone, Theon Cross on tuba and Boyd on drums is at its core a jazz track, but it shook up dance floors, quote. Seeing and hearing that truck track pop off on the dance floor, Garcia says, shaking her head, people are dancing to Binka, Theon, and Moses Groove. Do you know what I mean? That was the shit. Uh, it popped off all over the world. It popped off every single time. We barely have vocals in our music. So to hear people singing back our tunes, uh, that's crazy. It's like, you know this horn line? Quote, unquote. When I meet Garcia uh, backstage at Green Man Festival in late August, she is having one of the busiest weekends of her life. Due to a, uh, pl- due to play a set on the main stage of the Welsh Festival, warming up the crowd for Thundercat and Fontaine's DC, she has just arrived from Cambridgeshire, where she performed at Giles Peterson's club-influenced uh, club event, We Out Here. The previous night, she'd been at Birmingham. Uh, she'd been in Birmingham for mostly jazz. Two d- uh, just two days earlier, she played her first prom at London's Royal Albert Hall. A 30-year-old Camden, London-born saxophonist is part of a flourishing jazz scene in the capital that exists more and more beyond the parameters of jazz. The vast sonic qualities of Garcia's music, her debut record Source, which was nominated for this year's Mercury Prize, combined dub and calypso rhythms with psychedelic soul and blues, makes her equally at at home in a London jazz club and a field in the Brecon Beacons. In being invited to play at the proms, an institution that is traditionally overwhelmingly white, male, and upper middle class, you see the connection here, guys, just saying, uh, was quote unquote very special, says Garcia, who is wearing sunglasses with reflective lenses and a black source hoodie when we speak. Quote, It's definitely not where we usually play, but I think it's so important for them to invite bands like mine into the space to diversify the situation. Excuse me. It's a really beautiful thing to witness the change. You cannot realize what's going on because you're a part of it. Uh, and then you step out of it, and you're like, actually, this is a really big deal, unquote. The Royal Albert, Royal Albert Hall uh, felt like a new kind of space for her, she says, but, quote, I always feel at home wherever I go with my band. When you carry such beautiful community with you, you can go anywhere and still feel like you're not outside, unquote. For Garcia, music has always existed alongside community. She began her musical education age four at the council-run Camden Music Service, where she played violin and viola. 
Is it viola or viola? I'm not sure. Uh, she played strings until she was 18, gaining a formal education at the London School Symphony Orchestra and Junior Royal Academy, and then chose to focus on the saxophone, uh, which she has started playing around the age of 12. At jazz youth projects in Camden's Roundhouse Music Venue, she met Boyd and Cross, who is still playing, uh, who she is still playing with now. Quote, I played in lots of very different spaces, from very elite to very open and diverse. They all provided me with a musical and social education in different wonderful ways, unquote. But it was Tomorrow's Warriors, an innovative jazz education program specifically aimed at black musicians, female bu- musicians, and players without the finance to fund a career in music, quote, where I really found my community, Garcia uh, says. That was our youth club. It was where 17-year-olds who wanted to learn about bebop would go. We'd all share uh, tunes and write together. That was where I really started to come out of my shell, unquote. She then studied jazz at Trinity Laban, I'm hopefully saying Laban, uh, Conservatoire uh, in uh, Greenwich. Uh, Garcia uh, benefited from free music lessons, uh, council-funded programs, and grants to go on music courses in the school holidays. But now she says, quote, music education is completely different to how it was when I grew up, unquote. Tomorrow's Warriors is a charity. Since Garcia left, it has lost government funding and has had to crowdfund to keep its program free. Uh, quote, when everything started changing with people not giving a shit about music education, they switched to having uh, to raise everything themselves, unquote. She explains, uh, in 2018, a grammar school in Yorkshire was criticised for charging pupils to attend after-school after GCSE music classes. A 2019 report showed that children of families earning less than 28k a year were half as likely to learn uh, learn a musical instrument as those from a family with an income above 48,000. In July this year, the government approved a the government approved a 50% funding cut to university arts and design courses. Garcia emphasised that access to a musical education is expensive, uh, not simply because of the cost of lessons themselves. Programs such as Tomorrow's Warriors uh, helped her with, uh, quote, all of this stuff that people forget about, unquote, instrumental costs, the expense of traveling to music lessons and rehearsals, the need for a practice space outside of the home, conservative party cuts to our, uh, uh, yeah, sorry, it, it stopped really with the upper house girls. I was continuing on this. Conservative Party Cuts Arts Funding, uh, Garcia continues, will make the industry very elitist. Uh, this is a quote, very elitist. Even more elitist than music is already. It will dramatically affect the spread of diversity in the future for young people coming up through music and wanting to continue. They won't see it as a possibility, but as a struggle. I wouldn't be here if I hadn't had music lessons, says uh, Garcia says, looking around backstage as a band prepared a soundcheck. Quote, playing music is a mode of expression that is so uh, imperative, like dancing or singing or sport. All of this stuff is about finding different ways to express yourself. And that's really important in the world that we live in because we don't all want to be little worker bees for the system. You should be given the option to find out where your lane is. And if you never get sat in front of the path, you'll never find it, unquote. <sighs> so I was kind of, a, I'll get back to the, you know, the original point I wanted to make, obviously in connection with the uh, previous article as well. Um, but it's kind of fascinating thinking about um, uh, the, 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 the recorder lessons I had as a kid, and I'm sure a lot of people can relate to this. Uh, I was just never really into it. Um, I personally never really enjoyed the sound of a recorder. Just the... It's just really... 
I mean, it's a meme at this point. Literally, it's a meme of just like you know songs being played poorly on a recorder. That's 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 a, it's, it's a literally a meme at this point of how terrible record I think recorders are. Objectively, you know, it's another instrument like any other. But I just hate them. Um, but you know, in recent years, I've um, been really fascinated by the saxophone, and I've always uh, and I've been wanting to you know potentially get a saxophone one day and just you know learn. Um, you know, that's that's down the line. I'm not really seeking to, you know, uh, go bankrupt over it. But, you know, whatever I have, you know, a spare few hundreds, you know what I mean? I'll just, like, cop a saxophone and, you know, just hit up YouTube and get learning, you know what I mean? And I kind of want to do that for myself and explore that side. Um, but, you know, it was fascinating because I remember, like, being in primary school and seeing, and there was a room, you know, just a you know general music room, and there was like so many instruments about so many, but we never touched them. Like there was horns, there was I think there was like timpanies and shit. Like there was whole dance drum kits. You know what I mean? There was a lot of kit there, um, but we never touched them. Uh, the only thing I touched was a recorder, and that was the th- and that's something I and that was something I brought to school uh, in a little folder. Um, so you know, there's plenty of instruments. Uh, I mean, in secondary school, I you know it was all keyboard and stuff, and you know keyboard is cool. Um, but it's, you know, it's not my steez, right? And not, not, and that's two, that's two instruments out of all the instruments in the world that you could learn. And, uh, you know, I'm sure, hopefully, I, I mean, I'd, I'd like to think back in the day, if I was introduced to a saxophone or a clarinet, maybe I would have gone for it. I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe not. But it's only recent years, obviously, in my, um, uh, in my exploration of music itself and just getting into jazz more. And the interesting thing about jazz and the thing I love about it is uh, at this point in time, it is very diverse. Uh, the artists I listen to, a majority, you know, women, black, like it's, it's very diverse in my palette. I'm sure, uh, you know, obviously there are plenty of white jazz artists, right? But I don't, I don't, I don't peep them for whatever reason. Um, you know, I'm peeping Garcia. I'm peeping Moses. Bo- I saw Moses Boyd at Maiden Voyage a uh, few weeks ago. Alpha Miss, keyboardist, Ashley Henry, keyboardist and plenty of other things he does, right? I saw them and they are all... Uh, they're all uh, uh, non-white, you know, and that's that's the cool thing about it, and that's why I love about today's UK jazz scene is that it's so diverse. And I don't know if I would be that into jazz if I didn't know there was a diverse uh, uh, set of artists. Um, but going back to the main point, I wanted to link these two segments with, you know, if you if you're kind of ask funding, then who 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 where where the where the regular where the regular kids going? What are they going to do? Uh, you can ask this question in many other ways. Like instead of uh, instead of arts funding, how about uh, community center funding, which has been neutered in the past decade? How about that? Um, and it's the same. And, and TV and music are very, uh, you know, are very. Um, I feel different things. I feel TV is uh, a lot harder to get into. Um, just uh, logically, I feel, um, uh, you know, if you're, if, you're, if you're black and you're good at music, I mean, you know, there are some lanes there. There are some lanes you can go down. But if you're black and good at writing TV, mm, mm, you know, I'm, I'm sh- there's, there's plenty of like, you know, writing programs and stuff and writing grants. Uh, you know, there's plenty of diverse. Um, I think BBC Writers Room do a, a, a diverse um, comedy writing program as well. You know, there's plenty of places about like that, but... I'm not sure about it. I'm not sure about um, how, um, what's the word? Uh, how potent it is, you know. And when you have governments saying, "Oh no, Amer- oh shit, it's too American. Let's make things more British," 
And we know what that means. We know as soon as I say that, you know exactly what that means. And it, and it links to this. It links to this. It, I think they both link very well together. If you can't, if you, if you can't have a government that sees um, uh, working class, uh, non-white people trying to find their way into something, and you're not helping that along, but in fact you're hindering it. Then what was what, what I know what that I know what your agenda is straight up. I know what your agenda is on that point on that front. You can say whatever you feel that sounds great, but I know for a fact. But the facts are facts. If you're cutting arts funding, if you're um trying to make shit more white, which is let's be real, you know, then I know where I know where I stand with you. And we all know where we stand. But uh, if that's the case, then in terms of solutions. I mean, shit. What do you guys do when you get off work? What do you guys do when you, uh, when you're on your commute? Are you listening to music? Are you watching TV? There has to. There's, gonna, there's probably going to come a point where the government's not going to bother uh, having this government funding, and it will rely on you. So you will be responsible for the next generation of. TV actors, directors, TV anything, film anything, music anything. It will rely on you. So, I'm not saying prepare for that day, but imagine that day at least. So we finish up on life, and uh, this is an article I, I I saw just out, just saw it, and uh, I found it very fascinating read, and I wanted to give it to you guys as a you know just a further learning on uh, you know British history, Black British history especially, um, with uh, you know Black History Month coming uh, in the next uh, you know in October, um, you know, but obviously as I said before. Uh, Black History doesn't stop on Black History Month for me, and uh, so uh, this is a good example of it. So this is by, by uh, Brian Knight, who is an oral historian, um, journalist and oral historian. Uh, this is by The Guardian, it's called Althea jones Lequant, uh the Black Panther who became a Mangrove Nine hero. And uh, yeah, I just find this story fascinating, um, and especially when I watched Mangrove last year, uh, you know, the story of Althea... Uh, fascinated me wholly. Uh, one, one, just, just, just crazy to think about. Um, her story anyway. But uh, this is basically, you know, kind of just a little rundown of her story and uh, everything else. So uh, I thought it'd be worthy to read. So let's get into it. Doctor Althea Jones Lequint uh, re- describes her arrival in UK as more than just a complete shock. The woman who would be labelled by a special branch as, quote, the brains behind the Black Panther movement, unquote, uh, and go on to win a groundbreaking legal case against the government, says her move to Britain at the age of 20 was mind-shattering. <coughs> Swapping Trinidad for 1960s Britain uh, was, she recounts, being transplanted from a safe, warm place where your presence is normal to a country where racism was so widespread, she felt her very humanity was consistently under scrutiny. It was, she remembers, quote, a mind-boggling experience to recognise that you aren't the person that you thought you were, unquote. 
which is perhaps why between 1965 and 1973 Jones Aquinas was at the forefront of black of black radical politics in Britain, using this short time to make uh, some seismic changes to the country. This intensely private woman is remembered as the leader of the black, British Black Panther movement (BPM), although her commitment to collective politics. Yeah, although her commitment to collective politics means she denies there were any such posts. But what is certainly true is that, uh, yeah, what it, but what is certainly true is that when Jones Aquint, uh, n- now a retired senior lecturer at the University of the West Indies, won a groundbreaking victory as one of the Mangrove Nine, recent draft types by Steve McQueen, uh, she became one of Britain's most remarkable political activists. Jones Aquint was born in 1945 in Porto, Spain, Trinidad. Her mother, Viola, was a dressmaker and owner of the Little Marvel Dress Shop. Her father, Dunstan, 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 uh, was the school principal. Uh, both held key roles in the pre- uh, People's National Movement, founded in 1955 by the man who was to become the first Prime Minister of Trinidad and Tobago, Eric Williams. Quote, My father was the chairman of the local party group, and my mother was the secretary, she says, uh, says Jones Aquinas. Uh, so there was a political party group in our house. Unquote. As children, Jones Aquinas and her sister, uh, younger sisters Jennifer and Beverly accompany, accompanied their parents as they campaigned and marched, listening to conversations about independence and how a post-colonial society should be organised. In 1965, when she was 20, Jones Aquinas left Trinidad to study chemistry at University College London. She was not particularly keen to come to Britain, she clarifies, but, quote, the UK was the head of the house as far as our colonial history was concerned, so everybody who wanted to have a good quality, good quality higher education would value coming to the UK because it was the mother country, unquote. In the first week of her course, she arrived at an introductory meeting with lecturers and her fellow students, uh, with her lecturers and her fellow students, quote, uh, when I went in, the discussion that was going on just as I entered fell into a hush, she remembers finally, uh, finally, one brave soul ventured to speak, are you sure you're in the right place? So I said, well, yes, I came to read special chemistry, unquote. For Jones, it, for Jones Aquinas, it was telling, quote, it's a question that continues uh, to haunt black people in England. Are you sure you're in the right place, unquote? While racism is often discussed as if it's just about racial slurs, which she certainly faced, Jones Aquinas says this is just the tip of the iceberg. It, quote, runs far deeper than discussing racism at the level of peeping you, calling you a nignog and making jokes. The whole thing is a physical, psychological and emotional revolution that the human person has to make, unquote. Her arrival coincided with the rising discrimination towards black and South Asian communities. In Notting Hill, West London, there were violent attacks by fascist groups such as the League of Empire Loyalists, God, I'm not, saying, not hiding much with that name. Uh, White Defence League, again, even, even more obvious, and the union movement led by Oswald Mosley. Uh, the community was still reeling from the 1958 race riots and the unsolved racist murder of Antiguan carpenter Kelso Cochrane. Harassment by white residents and police was commonplace. Unsurprisingly, a horrifying Jones Aquinas uh, felt she needed to, quote, find a space with other people to figure out what the hell this whole thing is about, is all about, unquote. She began joining the political activities uh, at the West Indian Student Centre during her PH- uh, at, and during her PhD, University Socialist Society and Students' Union. One campaign took on the university's racist housing practices, uh, which refused to change. Jones Aquinas told her old history, the project that you that the university, quote, had two lists, one for landladies who would take uh, black students for one of those uh, who wouldn't take black students. Uh, 
yeah, unquote. Uh, the students uh, demonstrated and the BPM came along to support them. This is, said Jones O'Quint, quote, how I got involved and became aware that one had to do more work in a black community than the general socialist movement, unquote. The BPM had been formed in April 68 uh, by Nigerian playwright, uh, playwright uh, Obi Egbuna. Uh, and its origins lay at Speaker's Corner in Hyde Park, London, where black radicals would regularly meet to discuss politics. At this point, the BPM was a small group of men, including uh, Joan LeCointe's eventual husband, Ellie LeCointe, Sam Sagay, and Peter Martin, who organised demonstrations and produced a newsletter, Black Power Speaks. But in July 1968, Egbuna uh, was arrested after publishing a pamphlet titled What to Do If Cops Lay Their Hands on a Black Man at a Speaker's Corner. The pamphlet merely advocated for collective self-defence in response to police harassment, but he was charged with inciting violence against police officers. After his arrest, former members say Jones Quint had the reins. She, however, sees it differently, pointing out the, P- the BPM was a collective. Speaking to a global women's strike panel in 2012, she said, quote, I don't know how uh, suddenly I've become a leader. We di- didn't recognise those categories, unquote. Nor were the BPM uh, uh, a political party, she says, uh, quote, uh, we called ourselves a movement, consciously, because you didn't have to be a member to be an activist, to take responsibility for what's happening to you. A movement is a conscious decision to organise, to deal with the issues that face you, unquote. Former Panthers talk about a central core of members, including Jones, Aqu- Jones Aquint, her husband, Eddie, uh, Keith Spencer, Ira O'Flaherty, uh, and the writers Farouk Dondi and Mala Sen, uh, who organised activities and inclu- that included setting up Saturday schools to teach black history, creating a youth league of the BPM, uh, publishing their newsletter Freedom News, canvassing door-to-door, and most importantly, having a rigorous reading programme. All Panthers were expected to study key texts, the most importantly, The Black Jacobins by C.L.R. James. Uh, quote, The Black Jacobins stand as the Bible for aspiring, she says. Anybody who is interested in how one changes a desperate situation, total defeat, total subjugation, needs to read the Black Jacobins and see what the people of Haiti did and why today they continue to pay the price for their determination and their success against all the major European powers at the time, unquote. Uh, By 1970, the Panthers were mainly based in Finsbury Park, North London, and in Shakespeare Road in Brixton, South London. But there were also links with black and Asian organisations across the country the pa- and panther movements around the uh, panther movements around the world. At their height, they numbered about 300 people, but as former panther and dub poet Linton Kwesi Johnson has said, our presence was greater than our membership. I love that. Oh, I love that quote. Our presence was greater than our membership. Mm. Let that sink. That's a boss quote. Mm, that's great. Oh, that's a boss. Uh, racist attacks from the far right and the police were one of the challenges they faced. Jones Aquint remembers a, one incident which changed the life of a 17-year-old called Olive Morris. The BPM were sending their newsletter in Brixton, quote, One Saturday we were, making the, uh, we were in the market and a tall Nigerian man was standing by his car being confronted by the police. <coughs> Excuse me. The police accused the man of stealing the car. A big kerfuffle started up because we were around there sending our paper, uh, and two young, bla- excuse me, uh, two young people from the Black Panther movement, Olive and somebody else, Joel, uh, were arrested. Unquote. Morris, who had rushed uh, to the defence of the man, was brutally beaten by the police. The man, it soon became clear, was not a car thief but a diplomat from Nigerian embassy. Yet Jones Aquant remembers uh, the Home Secretary, James Callaghan, saying on TV 
that, quote, the police were, uh, were right and just doing their job, unquote. This episode, Jones Quiet says, was just one example of harassment they face on a daily basis. Classified documents cut discovered in 2010 by the historians Robin Bunce and Paul Field show that Jones Aquinas and the BPM were uh, subject to a vast surveillance operation in the 1970s, written by a special branch task force. The documents describe Jones Aquinas as, as academically brilliant and very militant. <clears throat> in 1970, Jones Aquinas uh, put these attributes to good use when she found herself fighting the police in different form through the courts in one of the most significant legal cases in British history, the Mangrove Nine trial. The Mangrove restaurant opened in on All Saints Road, West London in 1968, offering not just West Indian food, but a meeting place. In their biography of the broadcaster and activist Darkus Howe, Bunsen Field described the restaurant as, quote, decorated with traditional African art as well as pictures of hip musicians, unquote. Who quickly began, uh, began attracting famous diners from Nina Simone and Bob Marley to Diana Ross and Marvin Gaye. White liberals and counterculture individuals such as Vanessa Redgrave and Colin, Colin McKins followed. Quote, everybody used to go there, Jones Aquinas says. The lame, the halt, and the blind could be found at the mangrove, unquote. Yeah, the success of the restaurant in its owner, the black entrepreneur Frank Critchlow, uh, attracted police harassment. The police began to raid the restaurant frequently, citing unsubstantiated claims that there were drugs on the premises. Eventually, the BPM and Howe, a soon-to-be member, uh, decided to organise a demonstration in the ref- restaurant's defence. On 9th of August 1970, about 150 people took to the streets, listened to speeches by Howe and Jones Aquinas, and marched towards the local police station. A staggering 700 police officers were sent out to meet them. As Jones Aquinas recounts, uh, at, uh, at a certain stage, the police decided they were going to break up the, dem- the demonstration and they had certain people who they targeted for arrest. Unquote. Uh, there was a violent confrontation on Portnall Road. In court, Jones Aquinas' uh, cross-examination dis- uh, d- detailed the abuse she faced. <clears throat> she explained how she went to help a young black woman who, quote, had blood uh, on the left side of her face and was bawling and crying. A policeman shouts at her asking, what do you want? And warning, if you don't go away, we'll have you. When Jones Aquinas uh, continued to help the distressed woman, five, po- five police grabbed the pair and started dragging them away, elbowing Jones Aquinas in the process, quote, they were showing off and I got the worst of it, she said. Nine individuals arrested and charged with besides the riot and a fray were Jones Aquinas, Howe, Critchlow, Godfrey Millet, Rupert Boyce, Rodan Gordon, Anthony Innes, Rothwell Kentish and Barbara Beese. Uh, but what they did during their 55-day trial at the Old Bay changed everything as they adopted a radical strategy that put into practice their black power ideologies. Some self-representation deemed cru- was deemed crucial as it encouraged community self-reliance and helped circumvent the obstructions of the criminal justice system. It was decided that Jones Aquinas and Howell represent themselves so they could talk freely about their experiences of police racism. Meanwhile, Howell and Ian MacDonald QC, the barrister for Beasts, uh, invoked riots enshrined in Magna Carta to defend an all-black jury. <coughs> to demand an all-black jury, sorry. Jones, Aquinas, and uh, uh, Howe were talented orators, orators, I should say orators, isn't it? and succeeded in exposing police lies during cross-examinations, humiliating the prosecution and causing roars of laughter from the gallery. MacDonald later said of Jones, Aquinas, quote, she's the kind of person who could read out the alphabet and you'd be transfixed, unquote. In a 1973 documentary, Jones, Aquinas described how the prosecution mischaracterized the manga of restaurant using racially charged terminology. The police officer Frank Pouli 
uh, the instigator of the raids described the mangrove as a den of iniquity and said it was full of local criminals, ponces and prostitutes. When these comments were relayed to the local Labour MP, Bruce Douglas Mann, a character witness for the nine and a frequent diner at the restaurant, he strongly rejected police statements. The nine were found not guilty of inciting a riot, a monumental victory for the black community in Britain and great and a great embarrassment for the Metropolitan Police and British state. The activist Selma James, who was a defence witness, pointed out on a Radio 4 documentary that, quote, if the Panthers had lost, the Panthers had lost, the police would have felt empowered in what they were doing. And therefore, this case would be was a test case for all of us, unquote. Jones Coyne remembers Critchlow's barrister David Croft trying to divide him from the other defenders and a Trinidadian embassy representative attempting to do the same to her. In the end, she became so incensed that according to McDonald, she ended up bashing Chris, uh, Critchlow's barrister over the head with her shoe. Joseph Coyne said, uh, has said she doesn't remember that episode. The trial, market, uh, the trial marked the pinnacle of the Black Power movement. Afterwards, there were debates on whether the f- to focus on gender, class or solely race. Some BPM members, such as Morris, left to form black women's groups, and others, such as Howe, went on to edit the journal Race Today. Joseph Quint uh, continued campaign with the BPM, which he renamed the Black Workers' Movement until 1974. As Dean McQueen's critically acclaimed Small Act series, Joseph Quint was played by Letitia Wright. But when I asked what she thought of the film and the subsequent documentary, Black Power, by the director, uh, she says she has not seen them. Since the BPM ended, Joseph Quint has divided her time between Trinidad and Britain as a physician. Specialising in haematology and research scientists. Do her colleague know of her act- activist achievements? I doubt that, she smiles. During our conversation, uh, when I list her achievements, she leans forward, looks me in the eye and says simply, it's not enough. I ask, I ask what she thinks of the Black Lives Matter movement. Quote, I can't talk for your generation, she says, but leaves me with, the, uh, believe me, leaves me with some parting advice. It's your generation's choice, she says. It's black people's choice. If you want to be dead, play that. One day we'll wake up and do what the living do, which is to live, unquote. That last, um, those last two paragraphs really, um, they're, they're, yeah, those last, uh, those last couple of paragraphs really got me. I don't know why. I mean, I do know why. Um, yeah, the it's not enough bit, um, is really fascinating. And uh, I don't know if it was on this show as well, but um, you know, I read something. I I, I might it might have been this it might have been the show uh, where like uh, someone of this nature of uh, this legendary nature was talking about uh, was talking about you know how 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 young people at this time you know uh, sh- how they should act right. And um, they never, they never offer advice, you know, as to like what they should do. It's always a matter of choice. They always, they always go down that road of it's a matter of choice of what you want to do. You know what I mean? And uh, I find that very fascinating um, as to why they do that. And I get it. Um, yeah, I don't think it was. I don't think it was on the show, but I remember watching. I remember watching something. I forgot who it was, but it was very. It was very of that nature of like, um, what would you? What advice? You know what it was? I know what it was. Nikki Giovanni. It was Nikki Giovanni. I um yeah, I was listening to a podcast called Seventy Over Seventy, and uh, she said the very. She said a very similar thing. Uh, the host, uh, I think his name's Max something, um, Luncey something like that, and uh, he asked like, uh, what should, uh, what do you think of like the, you know 
uh, Black Lives Matter movement, uh, you know, of today. And she was like, you know, she 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 refrained from like you know giving out, uh, you know, that kind of advice of like you know, you know, you guys should do this or this is what I think. And she you know makes a she makes a choice, a concerted effort to not, you know, be on the front line anymore. And she made that a real concrete point of not being on the front line anymore. And I find I always find that very fascinating. And it's interesting that Jones Aquinas has the same, uh, same viewpoint. And I'm. I'm I'm beginning to see a pattern there, um, you know. If somebody like Malcolm X was alive, right, or uh, or or King, right, um, they they wouldn't be on the front line, and we know that for a fact, right? You know that why 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 should they be on the front line? You know that, but but I don't know how old they'd be at this point, but yeah, you know they wouldn't be on the front line, and uh, you never see. You know, old people like that on the front line. You see them there. You know what I mean? If they want to offer whatever, you know, just support on that front, then that, yeah. But you never see them on the front line. You never see them leading, and that that speaks to that speaks to something to me. And I think that final. And I think that lesson. I'll leave it there. I'll leave it here. And I think that lesson um, is that old older the older generations should be allowed to. Um, live their life, you know, um, to live and enjoy their life as, as how they see fit, um, they may not be, in in someone, in the same way as, uh, Jones Aquinas says, probably it's not, they probably think most of the time that what they did in their youth or whatever time they, you know, in their prime, so to speak, um, for lack of a better phrase, was not enough, but at some point you have to go live your life, you know, and Jones Aquinas is going through, is doing that, and Nikki Giovanni is doing that in her seventies. Um, but it comes to a point where it has to be left. It is always come. It always comes down to what the the younger generation wants, and I I I don't know. I don't know if we're built. I don't know if we're built for that. For that kind of thing, and the and the challenges are different, of course. You know, there's the police thing is very, is very grey now. But we're still seeing. Like, I've literally seen a, an old dude in put in hospital last week. An old black guy was put in hospital by the police. Uh, there was like a 13 year old kid with his head smashed in uh, a couple of days ago. So you know, it's still happening. I'm not saying it's not happening, but it's still happening. Um. So, yeah, it's 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 always about. It's always about what we, uh, what we as the younger generation want, and uh, but it's also a matter of like you know we have this education from social media and everything else where our world is so large now, you know what I mean? And previously it wasn't, um, where we see things and we want to enjoy life for what it is. We see the world as the shitty place that it can be, and we just decide. Most of us decide, you know, selfishly but understandably, to just live our lives and do whatever we feel. And uh, because I don't know, maybe we will have a feeling that it won't last long. Um, but anyway, I got I lost track. I had a point, but I lost track. I'll leave it there, ladies and gentlemen. From the Fifth End Podcast Network, Ivan Chaito, and it's been most good. Intro music is Too Much by Vanilla. You can find his link in the full show notes. Shout out to Chill Breakers for the ability to use the track. You can also find their link in the full show notes. Uh, thanks, Nappy Hire, for the ability to use Charismatic for the interlude. You can also find his link in the full show notes. And with that said, 
Hope you all have a good week. I sure always try and do the same. Until the next time, take it easy. Ladies and gentlemen.